theater is a medium more so than any place of words. So it's really important to articulate the words, I think, and then that allows the thought to be articulated, and then that thought allows the character to be articulated, and then that character allows his journey to be articulated. So it's kind of a, a step back, but it starts with the word, with just a single speaking the word. Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. My name is Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And in the studio today we're talking to John Douglas Thompson. Ben Brantley of the New York Times called John Douglas Thompson one of the most compelling classical stage actors of his generation. Thompson made his Broadway debut as Flavius, opposite Denzel Washington and Julius Caesar in 2005. He appeared as Librette in Cyrano de Bergerac alongside Jennifer Garner and Kevin Klein in 2007. And in 2009, Thompson had a breakout year, playing the title roles in Othello at the Theatre for a New Audience and the Emperor Jones at the Irish Rep. Thompson earned both an Obie Award and a Lucille Lortel Award for his performance as Othello. He has recently appeared as Richard III at Shakespeare and Company, as Macbeth at the Theatre for a New Audience, and as Antony in Antony and Cleopatra alongside Kate Mulgrew at the Hartford Stage Company. Hi, John. Welcome to the program. Hi, John. Hello. How is everybody? Great, great, great. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. You come out of Trinity, and we just finished an interview with a guy from Trinity, Ben Steinfeld. Oh, yeah. I come out of Trinity Rep Conservatory. Mm -hmm. Ben also came out of the same program, but much later. Right. What was the single most important thing that you learned at Trinity? I mean, that you carry with you to this day. Wow. There are a lot of things. I'm trying to think of one (laughs) thing distinctly. It's really tough. The training was strong. And very fundamental. I mean, you know, we learned a lot about voice and movement and body, Laban, Alexander technique. But I think maybe the maybe the most maybe I, I've, I'm coming around. I think to maybe the most important thing was, you know, that things have to cost you something. You can't just get up and do this work and try to create some sort of facsimile. You have to approximate the work. And I think if you do give the work effort, it costs you something. It should. It will be replenished, but in the process of performing and rehearsing and, and, and doing an eight-show week or whatever the case may be, it, it should cost you something. You should have to dig deep down and, and to find and locate the work as it relates to you intellectually and emotionally, but it should cost you something, you know, if you're going to do acting as a professional rather than a hobby, you know, and keep it simple and tell the truth. I often say to my students, if you're not hungry after a performance, there's something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. The art of performing should cost you. Should we talk about these pieces? I thought you had a few more questions. Oh, we've got lots. Oh, of we have lots of questions. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but you want to go you want to do the pieces. Okay. Yeah. You chose these pieces for a reason. What was the thinking behind the choices? Well, the reason why I chose Hamlet is this is a a speech that often in productions that I've seen has been either cut or trimmed down, and I just think it's a beautiful speech about friendship and uh the Benedict was really just because at least it's somewhat comic. It's different from the Hamlet piece, some sort of contrast. Where would you like to start? Well, let's start with the Hamlet. Why not? This is a speech from Hamlet from Act 3, Scene 2. Could you set the scene for us a little bit? Well, this is, uh, the players have come, and they're going to go off and get ready to perform. And prior to this performance, Hamlet is talking to Horatio. You guys ready? Mm -hmm. Okay. Horatio, thou art e'en as just a man as ever my conversation coped withal. Nay, do not think I flatter. 
For what advancement may I hope from thee that no revenue hast but thy good spirits to feed and clothe thee? Why should the poor be flattered? No, let the candied tongue lick absurd pomp and crook the pregnant hinges of the knee where thrift may follow fawning. Dost thou hear? Since my dear soul was mistress of her choice and could of men distinguish her election, she hath sealed thee for herself. For thou hast been as one in suffering all that suffers nothing. A man that fortune's buffets and rewards hast ta'en with equal thanks. And blessed are those whose blood and judgment are so well commingled that they are not a pipe for fortune's finger to sound what stop she please. Give me that man. That is not passion's slave, and I will wear him in my heart's core, I, in my heart of heart, as I do thee. Something too much of this. There is a play tonight before the king. One scene of it comes near the circumstance which I have told thee of my father's death. I prithee, when thou seest that act afoot, even with the very comment of thy soul, observe my uncle. If his occulted guilt does not itself unkennel in one speech, it is a damned ghost that we have seen, and my imaginations are as foul as Vulcan stithy. Give him heedful note, for I mine eyes will rivet to his face, and after we will both our judgments join in censure of his seeming. Thank you. Thank you very much. Did it cost you anything? <laughs> <laughs> the first question I'd like to ask you, is when you first encounter the speech, what do you do with it as an actor? It starts off as words on a page. Well, I think I try to look at a way of turning the words on a page into performance. Now, in the process of that, I feel characters revealed through the text. So you look at the text to try to find clues to the character, which sometimes within the context of the punctuation, the words, how the verse is kind of laid out, any kind of stops, what the character is actually saying about himself or about other people gives you an idea of who this character actually is. So from there, it's then this more difficult process of kind of learning how to speak the language. And what I mean by that is, in order to step into the character, you kind of have to realize that these are really smart, intelligent beings who have this innate ability to express themselves poetically. And then there's a physical aspect that then starts to come in. You know, once you get the information in your head, at least for me, then it can kind of drop down into my body and then it manifests itself in a physical way, which I'm trusting is okay and right for the character. I have to trust the fact that once I've been cast as the character that I, I either am the character or I will find it. It's a great answer. I do want to get back to the text, but I also loved your comment about... The idea that you just have to sort of trust it. Yeah, yeah. Trust is, a, is an interesting thing. I feel if you put in the work, then you can trust that you've put in the work and that this is beautiful writing. We're not going to get anything better than what Shakespeare's written. Um, we're not going to get anything as dimensional as what he's written. We're not going to get anything as close to who we are than what he's actually written. So those things you can kind of trust. It's not like you're dealing with a, with a not-so-good writer. The other part of the trust thing for me is the amount of work that you put in. You know, you put in a lot of work, and then you get to a point where, okay, I can trust all of this because I've put in the work, 
so I find like trust is a is for me is is, is there's two phases to it, you know. Yeah. The immediate trust I have, and then the trust that I build. Uh, to go specifically into textual things with the speech, do the mid stops? There's what eight mid stops? Mm-hmm. Do the mid stops tell you any? Does that well, yeah, help? you know, it helps me. I mean, here's the thing. I, I think that technically you can kind of understand this, you know, punctuation and mid stops and breathing at the end of a line, breathing at the beginning of a line. I mean, there are many different ways to look at this. And they're useful They're useful in a process of rehearsal. And we all understand them as some kind of rules that people have come up with as far as speaking the verse and accessing the character. But they don't always have to be followed. Like there's this mid stop here, I think, after on line 71, whose blood and judgment are so well commingled that they are not a pipe for fortune's finger to sound what stops she please. And then there's a period... And it's right in the middle of the line. And then the next portion of that line is, give me that man. There are a couple of ways you can look at that. You can say, to sound what stop she please, give me that man. And go right into the next thought, right. which sometimes that suggests. But you could also have an end stop and have a pause, to sound what stop she please. And then have something, give me that man. I'm not so much a stickler for rules as I am for trying to be truthful to the character in the moment. When you are creating the role right. and you see those mid-stops or you choose to do a mid-stop, do you look for a physical action to fill that moment? Well, sometimes it can be a physical action, but here's, let me back up a step. Uh, sometimes you look at text and because whenever I decide to do a play or I, I get a role in a play, I'll buy every copy or every different version of that play from the folio to the Arden to the annotated uh, version to the Vararium version. I mean, anything I can get my hands on. And the punctuation changes almost in each of them. Now, getting back to your question in the sense that, yeah, if I see a short line on a script, I can say, oh, okay, maybe there's some, maybe this is suggesting of some physical action, whether it's a touch to the face or, you know, you, you put your hand out, you put your arm around the person, uh, and you move to another area of the stage and then start the next sentence. And, and I think that's, those are some of the clues that you can find out within the language of the text, you know. And sometimes you have this period in the middle of a line, and that can suggest, you know, a quick movement onto another thought or a stop, a total end stop of the thought before the new thought begins. Sometimes you have lines that have more feet than the necessary 10. So I think he has one from yeah. his speech. Yeah, and so that could also mean, you know, something is really going on, something intense is going on, or something emotional is going on, and it just needs more of the focus of the character to get that in. Uh, Not faster, but it just requires that maybe something's happening emotionally or physically or intellectually to this character. When you're looking at a speech of this length, do you break the speech into beats? No. Uh, Well, I break it into thoughts. If you want to call thoughts beats, then so be it. But that's the first thing I look at when I look at a speech. I try to find where the thought begins and where it ends. And then the next thought begins and where it ends. And how one thought leads to the next thought. Now, if the thoughts change, if the thoughts are grouped together, like you have five separate thoughts that are about the same particular subject matter. But then all of a sudden there's a new thought that has nothing to do with those other five. That to me signifies an interesting beat, either for the character, like here's an interest, there's an interesting beat here. 74? Yes. Where, okay, in my, uh, give me that man that is not passion slave, and I will wear him in my heart's core. I, in my heart of heart, as I do thee. And then right after that line, there's a hash, 
hash mark and there's something too much of this and another hash mark at the end of that. This is obviously a beat. And, total and change. I, total, total change. So you recognize that. And then yeah. you said to yourself, what's going on there? Yeah. That's a clue. I need to figure this out. It's obviously a beat. And you say, okay, that's definitely something's going on. I don't know what's going on, but something's going on. And hopefully through the process of rehearsal and trial and error. Figure it out. You know, and that's the other thing. Like, I end up failing a lot more than I end up succeeding in the process of trying to find something, you know. So there are many choices that I come up with. And almost 90% of them, maybe 95, don't work or aren't appropriate. But I have to go through that process to find the 5% of the choices that would be appropriate with the cast, you know, with this whole collaborative effort that we call theater. Talking about some specific word choice, there's a line, 63, which is very interesting to me. 63, since my dear soul was mistress of her choice, that line? Yes. Okay. The choice to describe Hamlet's own soul as mistress is interesting. If that line were read, since my dear soul was master of his choice, it would be different. So why mistress of her choice? Well, by using mistress, it makes it, it's much more, it's softer, it's, it's more maternal, it's more loving. It seems to connote a more feminine side of Hamlet. To me, the, the overriding thing in any speech is the thought. Now, you can look at the thought and go inside of it and then find aspects of character but theater is a medium that is wholly dependent on words. So it's not television or film, which depends on... Images. Images. So you could look at this and say, you can, you can take a word and you can dissect it and then try to wrap yourself around that as that being a core for the character. And it's typically not. The word is... In, it's interesting that he chooses to use that word. Beyond that, the word may have no more meaning than Hamlet using it as a selection. The way I'm going to describe this is I'm going to use mistress instead of master, because that's closer. When I hear you speak that speech, my ear goes to so many instances of alliteration. Ah. And I feel that you, uh, you really bring that out. You bring that to the fore. Is that, something that, is that something that is on your radar as a performer? Well, I, you know, we talked earlier about like it's, it's theater is a medium more so than any place of words. So I think it's important that those words be heard and understood, you know, so that, you know, we understand there's consonants and there's vowels and, and the consonants, you know, really clip because they begin and typically end words. So I think it's important to really have an understanding of consonants and vowels and how they play in the makeup of a word and in the makeup of a sentence and in the makeup of a thought. But I remember in school how it was really important to get the consonants, you know what I mean? We were always talking about consonants and also vowels, but really consonants and keeping the thought up, lifting the thought up so that it doesn't go down and giving some variation to the sentence or the thought as you're reading it. And I still have, it's, these are things that are constantly in process. We're constantly working on our craft, right? I think Benedict might be uh, interesting to hear or to talk about. This is Benedict from Much Ado About Nothing, Act 2, Scene 3. And John, could you set the scene for us? This is the speech before the gulling scene. So this is, this is a speech that Benedict gives. He's alone in the arbor, I believe. Mm-hmm. I think it is. It's in the arbor. It's in the arbor. Yeah. It says the arbor. It could be anywhere. Okay. 
I do much wonder that one man, seeing how much another man is a fool when he dedicates his behaviors to love, will, after he hath laughed at such shallow follies in others, become the argument of his own scorn by falling in love. And such a man is Claudio. I have known when there was no music with him but the drum and the fife, and now had he rather hear the tabor and the pipe. I have known when he would have walked ten mile afoot to see a good armor, and now will he lie ten nights awake, carving the fashion of a new doublet. He was wont to speak plain and to the purpose, like an honest man and a soldier, and now is he turned orthography. His words are a very fantastical banquet, just so many strange dishes. May I be so converted and see with these eyes? I cannot tell. I think not. I will not be sworn, but love may transform me to an oyster, but I'll take my oath on it. Till he hath made an oyster of me, he shall never make me such a fool. One woman is fair, yet I am well. Another wise, yet I am well. Another virtuous, yet I am well. But till all graces be in one woman, one woman shall not come into my grace. Rich she shall be, that's certain. Wise, or I'll none. Virtuous, or I'll never cheapen her. Fair, or I'll never look on her. Mild, or come not near me. Noble, or not I for an angel? Of good discourse, an excellent musician, and her hair shall be of what color it please God. Ha! The prince and monsieur love. I will hide me in the arbor. Thank you. Thank you. The thing that I, I notice about this speech that's different than the Hamlet speech, or most, I think every speech we've done so far, is that it's in prose. Yeah. Is there a difference for you in approaching a speech in prose versus verse? Well, I think sometimes in in verse you're more aware of certainly line endings. But like when I look at something, you know, that's just plain, like with Benedict, it kind of lets me know the kind of person he is. Or he has the ability to be, let's say, an everyman. You know, he can go from the heightened stuff to, you know, something a little bit more common. And he does. You know, and, that, and that's what he does. We also talked about antithesis. Yeah, yeah. And repetition. Yes. And when you see those, how do you approach them? Well, when I see the repetition, it gives me an opportunity to, to establish repetition. Sometimes repetition leads me to figure out that the character is really trying to drive home a point or finding some sort of musicality in the language, in the jest, in the joke, in the, in the statement that allows him to come back to the same three words, back to the same four words. So it's kind of, there's kind of a rhythm there, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then with antithesis, it's kind of like, you know, throwing up the ball and whacking it, you know what I mean? It's like the tennis ball thing. And setting up a high and a low, setting up a high expectation and coming in under it, or setting up a low expectation and coming in above it's it. It's like an alley-oop. Yeah. And, you know, I think antithesis, for me, like all this stuff, and I certainly want to say this now, all this stuff is always a work in progress. I'm, I'm always trying to improve my craft because it's hard. And every time I step into a character, I'm just reminded of that. And I'm reminded of doing this reading now how difficult this is. And antithesis is one of the more difficult things to, I guess it's easy enough in theory to see, but it's really difficult to play 
And the antithesis is really what sometimes can drive a speech. But I, I also think that a lot of people try to manipulate it, like vocally manipulate it, yeah. both repetition and antithesis, which oh, yeah. I did not recognize you doing when you spoke it. Yeah, I no, I try. I, I mean, uh, I just try to say it, you know, without thinking about how my voice sounds because I'm not, I don't particularly like how my voice sounds. So I just try to find a place and a breath such that I can say it. You know, breath is this other thing that's really important. Most of the roles that I end up doing are fairly physical. So I find once I can get this whole musculature working, you know, the breathing apparatus working, it becomes easy to speak the verse. It becomes communication. Like I have to say this, and I know what it is, and I have to say this to this person now, or else I'll never get the opportunity to. So then language starts to be used as communication and objective. Right as opposed to words on a page. Mm. But that takes a while to get Well, there. you mentioned that there are things about your own voice that yeah. you don't particularly like to own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Are there things that you've learned in school that are particularly valuable to you? Are there things that you learned in school that you reject? Well, I go back to the understanding that a voice is breath. Breath is voice. Once I find breath, then the voice happens, right? And I don't necessarily have to think about how my voice is sounding. I just have to think about the communication of ideas and thoughts and concepts. So what I kind of learned in school, you know, a lot of stuff in school is really about accessing breath to utilize your voice so that you can do a show and not lose your voice. You can be on stage and communicate a long, complicated thought. And when the thought is over, you can go back down and get more breath. So that's what really stuck with me from my education we look forward to seeing a lot more of you on stage in the future. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing you out there from your lips to God's ears. John Douglas Thompson, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the program today. You're welcome. Thanks, John. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.